Is your identity someone who is out of control, someone who is irresponsible, someone who is undisciplined? Okay, well, so what if you shifted your identity and you told a different story to yourself about yourself? You're someone who is competent. You're someone who is intentional. You're someone who is thoughtful. Well, if that's your identity and that's who your someone is, your habits would be different. You wouldn't be pinching every penny, but your habits would probably be quite different. Welcome back to the Most Hated Effort Podcast. I am your host, Sean Maslick, and I am delighted to bring you another outstanding conversation. Today, I'm speaking with Bruce Celery. You are going to feel good after listening to this insightful discussion as Bruce oozes throughout the entire conversation with enthusiasm and just a deep level of care for the work that he is doing. If you are from Canada, which I know a lot of listeners aren't, but if you are from Canada, you have most likely heard Bruce's voice on one of the several platforms that he has worked in and for in his 30-year career. Whether that was the CBC, Money Sense, the Oprah Winfrey Network, CityLine, one of his books, as a founding member of the BNN Bloomberg, or his Sirius XM radio show. For over 30 years, Bruce has been a journalist, TV host, author, speaker, and now CEO of Credit Canada. This conversation really dives into an important question that Bruce often asks, and that's to clarify and understand what is your money for? What I want people to do is to create what money is for versus describe it. So mostly we describe it, like what's money for? It's for the mortgage, it's for rep hockey, for my kid, it's for groceries, it's for all those things. Those are an accurate description of what it's for. But if you think about it as an act of creation, then you immediately tap into your core values. And your core values are different from mine. They're different from the person who lives next door to you. We all have our own thing. And what I want people to do is align their core values, what makes them happy, what their purpose is in life, with their money. Because that's the big idea. Our conversation touches also on debt and how debt impacts all of us in our lives and how we can start to make meaningful changes by addressing the root cause of debt rather than the symptoms that we most often focus on. I highly recommend you checking out Bruce's podcast, Moolala, on Sirius XM Radio. It is a great podcast and I was even featured on Bruce's show. Before we get into this episode, If you've been enjoying the Most Hated Effort podcast, you can support the show in one or two ways. You can head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review, or you can send this episode to a family, friend, or colleague, or anyone who you think would enjoy this conversation. And now, I hope you enjoy this fascinating conversation with Bruce Celery. Welcome to the podcast. Hello there. I am excited to have you on. We were just kind of chatting before, and your voice has been a constant voice in my financial journey for many years. So I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. (laughs) Hopefully, it was a voice voice of encouragement. It was. It was. It always has been. 
I had so many areas we could start with, but I thought we would start with the only logical one. And that's taking a trip back in your history to when you were BNN's bureau chief in New York City, where you were at the forefront, from what the internet tells me, of covering corporate crime, including the high-profile trial of Martha Stewart. So I had to ask, was there anything at all that stuck with you from this trial that was super interesting that you now apply to whatever it is? A number of things stuck with me. So this is in like 2003, 4, 5. That was the time. So it was Dennis Kozlowski. It was Ebers. It was Martha Stewart. There was a whole bunch of trials. And she had extraordinary composure. She was well-spoken. She was well-dressed. She had her entourage. But what struck me the most about that whole experience was how it ended. So after her conviction for obstruction of justice, you know, I think a couple weeks passed, and then she summoned the New York press corps to her loft in Chelsea. It's a work loft. So imagine like a really big, big, big room in an extraordinary building in Manhattan. And as, you know, a member of the, the corps, I went to that meeting. And at that press conference, she chose to forego her appeals and go to prison. And it was a shocking move because, especially at that time, they were appealing and fighting and all that stuff. And she chose to move on. And I thought that was a great example of accountability and of a future orientation to say, listen, my life's not done. And when you look at Martha Stewart's story since then, she has done some really fantastic things since, you know, departing her or finishing up her prison stay, which is about four months. But here's the most interesting part for me. Years later, I was hosting something called The Art of Leadership for Women. And I was asked to interview Martha Stewart in front of 1,500 people live. And I was excited about it as Martha Stewart. But I was also a little nervous because, you know, I had this past having covered her trial. So in the interview, I wasn't sure how I was going to weave it in. And I asked her about highs and lows of her career. And she said, well, the low is obvious. And I said, well, tell me about it. And she said, well, it was being convicted and going to prison and my concern about how that will affect my legacy. And I said, well, I don't know. I was there. She was like, <laughs> what? So I was there. I was there during the trial. I was there the day that you um, decided to go to prison and not appeal those charges. And my takeaway was that you were taking accountability and that you were focused on the future. And I thought that was really inspiring for a leader to do that. So we had this really amazing moment. But from that point on, she thought I was really famous. So she she would be like, you know, Hillary and Chelsea, right? I was like, not personally. Well, <laughs> let me tell you a story about Chelsea Clinton. And she kept name dropping, but in a way that she was kind of implying that we were in the same social circle. It's crazy. Bruce, I know I was throwing you for a curveball, and that was not planned, that question. And yeah. wow, not only did you answer it so well, I really like this idea of moving on, accountability, yeah. and future-orientated, which, I mean, are great conversations for, I'm sure, what we're going to get into talking about debt and dealing with debt. I mean, moving on, accountability, and future orientation. So thank you. That was a wonderful story. My curiosity is bubbling now because... 
while you maybe didn't interview any of the Clintons, you've interviewed and talked to some interesting people in your career. Maybe it's the Martha Stewart interview, or is there any other interviews that really have last or left a lasting impression on you? Early in my career as a business journalist, I had been a business guy for years. I worked in the business world, and then I was a producer. But in the summer of, oh, geez, I don't want to guess the year, I was thrown in to fill in as the anchor of the morning show on what was then ROB-TV, what's now BNN Bloomberg. And I had prepped anchors, but I'd never been an anchor. So I'm interviewing the CEO of this company called Skyjacks. They don't exist as a publicly traded company anymore. And business television was quite new at that time. And what we found with a lot of CEOs was that they thought they were in charge because they're mostly in charge, right? Mm -hmm. And this, I don't remember his name. He thought he was in charge. So we were looking at the quarterly earnings numbers and it was clear that the improvement quarter over quarter was driven almost exclusively by a currency gain. So I asked about this question in a delightful, incisive, charming way, at least that's what I hoped I was doing at the time. And he said, that's not the question. And I said, I'm the one asking the questions. I don't know where I got the bravado because literally this is the first time I'd ever been an anchor interviewing CEOs. And we had a great, if very tense conversation about his most recent quarter. So that stuck out for me because I think what I could have done was responded to his aggression and uh, sense of entitlement And as a proxy for the viewer, which is a proxy for the investor, my job was to ask questions, not to be a jerk, but to say, huh, it's not what I'm seeing in the numbers. What am I missing? Mm -hmm. So that was one that has always struck me as doing the right thing as the proxy for people who don't, I had privilege. I was talking to the CEO directly. And if I had done the, oh, congratulations, you had a great quarter, then I'm not doing service uh, I'm not doing uh, the service to the listener and therefore the, or the viewer and therefore the investor. Really interesting. I swear I have an, a theme to this podcast that isn't just your interviewing, but this makes me think about, for me, for example, I, I do a podcast. I try to talk about money and like the human experience of money. We have a long career like yourself in journalism. As financial reporting or any sort of media is changing and evolving with social media and still traditional journalism. Let's talk financial. What role do financial journalists play in providing information, but balancing this fine line of, I feel like there's a lot of provoking, like we're intentionally trying to catch attention. How do we navigate like someone like myself or you who are still working in journalism, I believe, some capacity? Yeah. How do we balance this catching attention, but not doing it in a way that's artificial, but still challenging the interviewer like you did? I don't worry about attention. I'd never think about it. Now, Mm -hmm. a part of that, I'm sure, is a negative, right? But I think my formative years were in traditional broadcast. There was no Instagram or Twitter in my early days. So I really have my eye on asking questions and follow-up questions that will elicit an insight something that is revealed that would not have been revealed had I not asked the question. Because knowledge is a dime a dozen. You can Google every single 
piece of written word out there. It's available on the internet. You can get analyst reports, you can get transcripts, you can get news reports. That's very easy to find. But as an interviewer, I'm always thinking about what's the question I could ask that would elicit something that is new or fresh? And I don't worry about attention. If I do that, I feel like that's what people are going to tune into and come back for. Yeah, you get, so if you have some like big blow up with a guest, you're going to be a Instagram or Twitter superstar for five minutes. But I've been in this business for a really long time. I know I look young. I'm not young. But I think the staying power is not in trying to get attention. It's trying to do the job, which is telling stories, eliciting insight, having conversations that are relevant and resonant. It's so true. This social media era, it's quick learning and it doesn't have that staying power or that enduring effect. So thank you for that. All right. This is a money podcast to some degree. I want to talk about your work with Credit Canada and the role debt plays. But before I got another question for you, to your point, you've been doing this for a, a long time. Those were your words. I'm not making an assumption. It's true. I have. <laughs> and you've talked about and covered money in so many different facets. But when you look at Bruce, Bruce's like human experience of money. If someone were to ask you that, which I'm going to, what would you say your human experience of money is? So I was raised in a loving family in which both my parents grew up in the Great Depression. So they're, you know, they were born in 1936. The family environment for us, there's five kids in my family of origin, was always one of needing to be careful. You really needed to be careful. So it was, listen, my parents were professionals. We were not living close to the edge in any way. But because of the way they were raised, they were on it. So a best before date was barely a recommendation. You know, you would certainly sniff the milk. You would take a small mouthful of the yogurt. But if it didn't lead you convulsing and racing to the bathroom, you ate it. Still good. It's totally fine. Allowance was recorded in a ledger. So when you wanted something, you would go to my dad. It was always my dad. He'd pull down the ledger. He'd look, go to the page with your name on it. And he'd look at the balance and you'd say, I'd like to, I'd like to withdraw a dollar, two dollars, whatever it was. And he would always ask, what for? Never with judgment, but with intention. So I learned to be intentional about money. Now, there's a pro and a con to that. The pro is uh, good financial habits from a very young age. I worked, all of us had jobs very, very young. So if that's the good side, the downside was I really did live in this scarcity mindset. And really, the context for money growing up for me was one of survival. Like, it's very tense. If you make one wrong move, the house of cards is going to collapse. And so how that affected me as an adult is I had no ability to enjoy the fruits of my labor. I couldn't take vacation. I didn't spend money on clothes. I didn't spend money on a car. And at a certain point, I had this realization that the context of money as survival was stifling for me, was unhelpful in living a great life. So I did a full stop, pause, and thought, well, if I get to say what money is for, would I say it is for survival? No. Would I say it's for retirement? No. Would I say it's for material stuff? No. 
I would say money is for adventure. And this was an epiphany for me, like a, wow, my God, mind-blowing epiphany because I still did all the things. I am judicious about how I spend. I'm smart about how I invest. I still do all those things. But I made sure that I spent such that I could have a great adventure. And soon after I had that insight, I booked a three-week vacation to New Zealand by myself. And I trekked the Franz Joseph Glacier and I did the root burn and the Kepler tracks. And I took a boat into Milford Sound and I crossed the strait from Wellington to Christchurch. I did this amazing vacation that really was only possible because I had reframed what money was for, for me. How long ago, ago was that journey to New Zealand? That was 35 that right? Years ago? 30 years ago? 30 years ago? 25 years ago? I don't know. A long time ago. We've had a couple um, researchers on the value of spending on experiences on the show and really to bring the science around. And it just, it always amazes me. You, You had so much detail in recounting what you did in New Zealand and 30 plus years ago. Your tone even changed when you were talking about that. Oh, yeah. It always fascinates me. This is one of the most interests I have with money is these stories that we tell ourselves based on these financial flashpoints as children and how much they unconsciously, for the most part, influence how we think, feel, and behave with money. And it's really interesting to hear your story on how you're able to look at money in a different way or experience money in a different way. But you made a comment that was interesting to me that you still did all those, call them responsible things. And it was just the way you were relating that really, I guess, gave you the permission to be adventurous with money, even still doing those other behaviors. Yeah. There are a lot of people like me, by the way, who save to excess. So there are certainly people who spend to excess, of course. There are people who save to excess. And I think for those people, they haven't sufficiently answered the question, what is money for? Because, I mean, you know, you could say, well, money is for legacy, so I'm not going to spend any money because I'm going to pass it down to my grandkids. Maybe. But there's a part of that that may be really just hoarding, right? Mm -hmm. Some people Mm -hmm. hoard old newspapers and magazines, or some people score the success of their life based on the amount of money that they have in their investment account. There's nothing to say that that's not a valid choice. It's a totally valid choice. But just be very conscious about what you're doing and what's important to you. I will never care about, you know, having the biggest house. I certainly will not care about having a new car. If someone cut me a check for a hundred grand today, I would not spend it on a new car. I drive a 2013 RAV4. I will drive it for as long as it'll have me. But what I don't ever clock is how much I spend on travel. I don't even look at the number. There's no budget there. I don't tally it afterwards. I just go and have a great time. And this is something for me and for my husband and my child. We travel all the time. We're not staying in five stars and, you know, Cabo, but we are out there in the world experiencing all that the world has to offer. And it has some wonderful things to offer. It does. I saw in one of your clips where you're you're asking the audience, what is your money for? And they were coming up to the podium and saying it. And it, it just... It it struck me as quite a powerful event. You can see like this permission to be like, wait, I'm allowed to say this? Yeah. Maybe speak to what you've observed people experiencing when they come up and actually probably talk 
or say this voice that's been dormant and that they never ever felt that they could say? So this question, and I do it in keynotes. I did it on, you're probably referencing the reality show I did the on the Oprah Network. I do it in lots of different contexts. It's in both my books. Because what I want people to do is to create what money is for versus describe it. So mostly we describe it. Like, what's money for? It's for the mortgage. It's for rep hockey, for my kid. It's for groceries. It's for all those things. Those are an accurate description of what it's for. But if you think about it as an act of creation, then you immediately tap into your core values. And your core values are different from mine. They're different from the person who lives next door to you. We all have our own thing. And what I want people to do is align their core values, what makes them happy, what their purpose is in life with their money. Because that's the big idea. So in these conversations, I talk about what context for money is. It's the setting in which an event occurs. It frames the event. And just changing the context changes everything. So the utility of this question is such that people realize that when I'm talking about money, I'm not actually talking about money. It's like, what do you mean? That's like obtuse. When I'm talking about money, I'm talking about whatever it is that they have created as their context. So after people do this exercise, they have the most amazing answers. They'll say, my money is for family. My money is for contribution. My money is for experiences. My money is for comfort. My money is for beauty. Amazing. With that as the frame, with that as the setting in which an event occurs, who wouldn't file their taxes on time? Mm -hmm. Who would not pay attention to how much they're spending on their telecom bill? It doesn't make any sense. Your behavior would therefore be inconsistent with the setting. It's just weird. So here's an example. In the summer, you're going to the lake, you put on swim trunks and a, you know, a sun shirt, baseball cap and sunglasses, and you go to some body of water, a lake, a river, a beach, a pool, whatever it is. The context has that physical attire make sense, right? Like you're wearing a bathing suit because you're going to the lake. Great, great, great. You would not likely wear that ex exact same set of clothing walking into an in-person job interview, right? Like the context is so different. You just wouldn't do it. You'd be like, what? the hiring manager would be like, this job does not actually take place at a pool. So <sighs> it takes place at a bank or it takes place at a manufacturing facility. So you wearing flip-flops and shorts doesn't really make sense. You not keeping an eye on your spending doesn't make any sense in the context of beauty, right? So that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to have people awaken to the impact of their behaviors, behaviors that they are largely oblivious to. Like they don't even, they have no clue. Most people have just mm -hmm. no clue. Mm -hmm. Reminds me of this upstream and downstream thinking. And like we're upstream is we're doing more proactive things that prevent a whole bunch of issues downstream. We're downstream, we're reacting, we're juggling. And it just seems like the narrative around money is always like around budgeting, pay your mortgage, your taxes. While well, of course we have to do these things, but it, it seems to me it's, it, it like shapes this context to be like money's for paying bills. Yeah. Where I hear you saying is no, well, let's do some upstream thinking money's yeah. for travel or family. And then we take care of the other stuff, but I could see how it really emotionally engages people with, to your point, they'll, they'll file their taxes or save or whatever it is. Yeah. They have their vested interest. So why would I want to get a handle on my money? 
I'd want to get a handle on my money for beauty. I'd want to get a handle on my money for travel, for experiences. That's my why. And that vested interest is so critical. The second benefit is it's a check to your behavior. As I say, like, you know, I have this couple who, who said, they do my, you know, whatever, they're at an event with me and they come up to me afterwards and they're like, ugh, our life, financial life is not great. We have this big house that the only way we can afford the mortgage is for both of us to work full time. And I said, great, okay, what's your context for money? Our context for money is beauty. Well, then is this house beautiful? No, it's just big. And beauty to us is about being in the mountains. Okay, so your behavior is inconsistent. If you said our money is for prestige, having a big, beautiful house makes sense, but it doesn't make any sense, does it? No, it doesn't make any sense. So I hear from the six months later, they've sold the house, they've moved to a crappier neighborhood, to a townhouse, and it means one of them only has to work at a time and they can spend much of their time traveling around and being out in the mountain. The last thing I'd say around context is that it gives you words that are different from the words that the industry talks so much about, like budgeting. Ah, just put a thorn through my heart. What a horrible concept. That sounds completely uninteresting. But if we're doing this thing where I have to look at numbers so I can have more adventure, okay, all mm -hmm. right, I guess, I'll, I guess I'll do that. The other thing that it reminds me of, I just started reading this book called Atomic Habits, which mm -hmm. is a New York Times bestseller. James Clear is the author. And he talks about habits being a function of your identity. So to your point about upstream thinking, who are you and therefore have your habits, you know, bring that to life or reflect that. So if I bring this into my world about money, I would say, is your identity someone who is out of control? someone who is irresponsible, someone who is undisciplined. Okay, well, so what if you shifted your identity and you told a different story to yourself about yourself? You're someone who is competent. You're someone who is intentional. You're someone who is thoughtful. Well, if that's your identity and that's who your someone is, your habits would be different. You wouldn't be pinching every penny, but your habits would probably be quite different. Really appreciate this. I mean, we both have heard so much financial literacy. I air quote it for people Thank listening. You. Thank you for the air quotes. Yeah, yeah, important. But so much that is do this, do this. You should do this. You should do this. And what you're talking about now, it really speaks to me because that that's this human experience of money that we, I don't know if it's avoided. We just didn't pay enough attention to in the past. So thank you for your answers on those. So, Looking at your background, we can see you've done, like we talked about, lots of different types of media, whether it was a CBC, you've written for Money Sense and probably hundreds of other publications, Oprah show. You and Preet were doing that one, right? Banerjee? Yeah, Preet hosted it yeah. after I did. Oh, after you did. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, thought I you guys did the first together. season and he did the second season. So lots of financial education, financial literacy. And then three years ago, it appears you made a from the outsider looking in, a relatively significant shift as yeah. you took on the CEO of Credit Canada. What was the unique thing that drew you to this role? Because I can imagine it's no it's no small role. You're, it's a large organization, 50 yeah. years of experience. What was the catalyst? I got a headhunter call. And they did this thing, which I didn't even know was a thing, where they get you on the phone and they say, we want to ask who you know who we should consider for this role. So mm. I show up with my list of people like, oh my God, she would be so great at this job. Yeah, she would be so great at this job. And as he's describing the job, 
I was like, oh, you should put me on the list. I actually (laughs) think I'd be good at that job. So I was put on the list. I did the interview. And there were two things that were really compelling for me about this job. First was it was a transformation. So the sector has not had much innovation in a very long time. The agency hadn't had much innovation in a long time. Things had been flat for a very long time. And then the second thing was, is when I looked at the service delivery, it was all, like all the things that I'd been trying to do in, as a consultant working with financial institutions, I would now suddenly have much more influence on what was available in the marketplace. Like I actually wouldn't be trying to sell anything. I would just be able to say, no, we're going to allocate our resources to this. And so I took the job. I was hired uh, with a very ambitious mandate. And a big part part of that was re-envisioning the future of the agency and the mission of the agency. And it has been a delight. Our people, like the people who work at Credit Canada, are the B-E-S-T. They're the best. A lot of them have been with the agency for a long time. And you might think, oh, well, therefore they'd be change averse. You know, they're like, you know, old dog, new tricks. Could not be further from the truth. They have lined up to all these amazing and ambitious things that we have decided to do. And we're now serving, we have 10,000 people a year. We have reconfigured almost every single aspect of how that agency works. And we're killing it. We're having a great time and we're making a deep and profound difference to thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people every year. Oh, good for you. I mean, I I was blown away just the history of 350 million debts resolved over its 50 years and 10,000 people a year now. What a reach. And especially having conversations around debt, which we were talking about stories that we attach to the context. I mean, I can't imagine all the different stories that you you guys all hear at Credit Canada around the debt and how paralyzing it is. So my question is, what have you learned about people's human experience around debt that perhaps you never accounted for before or perhaps even surprised you? Debt's not the problem. Debt's not the problem. Debt's the symptom. So if debt's the symptom, what's the problem? And I think one of the things that we've done a really great job on in our financial coaching work in particular, in addition to credit counseling, and I can distinguish between those two things in a second, but we've really done a ton of work to connect the disparate problems that people can have that manifest as a symptom as debt. So addiction, depression, anxiety, bipolar, job loss, marital difficulties, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Those typically are the problems. And the symptoms are they've, you know, extended themselves on credit cards or, you know, they aren't making their minimum payments or whatever it is. So I think that's been a real insight to say, if we can make those connections for people and help them see how visceral and critical those connections are, they can start addressing the problem. And that's the only way we can have a sustained impact is when people address the problem. And then I'm going to oversimplify it, but I'll say it this way. The money then just takes care of itself. 
And that's an oversimplification. Mm -hmm. I know you still have to do the things. You still have to make sure you pay your credit card on time and hold down a job and, you know, be thoughtful about, you know, how you spend and all those sorts of things. But the lion's share of the issue is providing people with the insight such that they alter behavior. And you began with the air quotes about financial literacy month or financial literacy. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of financial literacy because it's wholly insufficient. It's just not enough. I mean, we think about Canada, like, like let's, we're, we were citizens of Canada. We're looking at the future of our country. And if we said, okay, we're holding the standard for our citizenry to be literate, that's the standard, wholly insufficient. Mm. We can't, like, literacy, yeah, they need to be literate by the time they're eight. And then from the time they're eight until the time they're 70, we need them innovating and producing and manufacturing and selling and marketing and supporting and counseling and providing health and well-being. And we need them to do so much more. Literacy is way, way too low a bar. And it's the same with money. Financial literacy is way too low a bar. I agree. The uh, research is really coming out to show that how insufficient financial literacy is. So I like this approach, this innovation approach that you're taking to Credit Canada. You made a comment about counselor versus coaching. I'm curious what your experience with the coaching has been, and you can give the nuance. And perhaps are your coaches taking the time for people to really tell this story, the origin story, to your point that that's the symptom? And, and maybe if you have, I don't know if you have a specific example, if not, that's okay. Yeah. But like, kind of like showing like, ah, okay, when we or identify the root cause, there's a separation that I'm not the debt. Yeah, yeah. So um, here's how I distinguish between credit counseling and financial coaching. Credit counseling, the value is in the advice. Mm -hmm. So clients call in, we talk to them, we listen, we listen without judgment, we listen, listen with compassion and kindness. We look at their budget with them and then we help provide them some advice on what they could do. So they could do, you know, they could do some more work on budgeting. They could do a debt consolidation program with us. They maybe, it makes sense for them to do a consumer proposal or a bankruptcy filing. Maybe they consolidate their debts with a line of credit secured against their home. So we provide advice. The value of coaching is in the result. So we don't so much provide them the result or the advice, we hold them accountable to have a result. And the easiest example I can give you is the coach of a sports team, a professional sports team. She is not paid to give advice to her players. She is paid to win. That's the result. And if she doesn't <laughs> win, she doesn't have that job anymore. Like, you know, we're not, I'm not talking community house league for seven-year-olds. Yeah. I'm talking about, you know, the women's soccer team competing internationally. She doesn't, they are not winning. She doesn't get paid. So when our humans are operating as coaches, our eye is on the result. And what that provides, which is amazing, is tremendous latitude in terms of the questions we ask and the um, resources we offer. So for example, we had a client, at, we have a financial coaching program. We had a participant who was dealing with some real mental health issues, was living on a very small amount of income from the government, living in his relative's basement. And he said, listen, here's the, the challenge is my parents are of means. And when they pass, they're in their 80s, when they pass, I'm going to inherit millions. Okay. So if I was 
advice only. I would provide him whatever advice I provide him. But instead, because my focus is on the result of his financial well-being, I said, can I talk to your parents? He was like, what? Yeah, <laughs> I'll talk to, like, talk to your parents. And I had a call with the parents and I said, I am not an estate lawyer. I have no skin in the game here. I just want to ask you some questions. Here's what I observe from our participant. Here is the way this is going to go. So he inherits this money. He has no skills in terms of managing that money. And it's likely going to exacerbate his mental health issues. I think there is an opportunity for you to have a real, you know, straightforward conversation with him about what the future looks like and set up some supports now so that he's got a living income. He's not going to work, but he's going to have a living income now. And then after you pass, that his financial future maybe is outside of his hands. So they took a couple of actions. They gave him a much more significant wage to live on and they put his inheritance into trust. So it will be managed professionally by someone else. If you think about the financial ecosystem, who else is going to have that conversation? With him. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe their estate planner would have said, what's the, you know, health and well-being of your kids look like? But they hadn't had that conversation. So it gives us a whole bunch of questions to ask. So we, we as a part of our financial coaching, we'll, we'll say, how's your mental health? Are, are there things that you're dealing with? Yeah, I'm dealing with ADHD. I was diagnosed with ADHD as a child. How are you managing it? I'm not managing it at all. Okay, great. So on your, I'm going to hold you accountable to book an appointment with your GP. Because we're not specialists in any mental health area. But what we can do is hold our participants accountable for actions that will have them engage with the professionals who do 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 those things. So, you know, the big aha for a participant in our financial coaching program is, oh yeah, I'm now properly medicating my neurodiversity. Mm -hmm. And now that I'm doing that, my impulse shopping has reduced dramatically and I have the executive functioning that enables me to pay my bills on time because I dealt with the problem, which was my untreated neurodiversity that affected how I live my life. Yeah, focusing on the the root cause, right or wrong, or however it happened, our industry, I feel like didn't get that right for many years. If you weren't saving, if you were overspending, I'm a financial planner by background. We, we brought out the computer software to show, look at all this deficit red color coding that you're not going to do. Like really... We are shame-basing them to, to hopefully change. And when you speak about long-term sustainable change, the statistics FP Canada brings out every year show we, we weren't doing the best of job. Having these types of conversations, I feel like really opened the door for, for clients to realize that, again, I kind of said this earlier, but I'm not the problem. Like, yeah. like, they're, like I can share my action, but there's something else going on and the complexity of money. Yeah, and there's a really important nuance there. When you say, I'm not the problem, you need to immediately follow that with, I'm still accountable. Yes, yes. Because when I'm Mm -hmm. not the problem, if you put a period at the end of that sentence, Mm -hmm. you might infer from that that someone else is the problem. Mm -hmm. So I'm just going to wait here on my couch while that someone else deals with it. So I'm not the problem. And I'm still accountable for it. That's right. Your, your basement is flooded. You didn't, you know, you may not have done anything wrong. It's a sewage backup because of a drain, you know, the valve didn't work or whatever, but you've still now got a problem in your basement. You're accountable for it. You're the homeowner. 
So Mm -hmm. that is a paradoxical notion that Mm -hmm. people have to wrap their minds around. I also want to say something about the the industry. I think the biggest piece of it is the way the industry is compensated. Because the industry, let's use traditional financial planning, it is compensated based on advice and even more so assets under management. There is no connection, little more today, but certainly historically, between the result of a human who is on track financially and is demonstrating the behavior that will have them achieve their goals. It's not on the scorecard anywhere. Mm -hmm. You know, like as a financial planner, you look at the performance of the portfolio, you've got a box ticking, like, do you have your insurance? Do you have your will? Do you have the beneficiaries? Like all those sorts of things. But there isn't a box that says, is this person on track to achieve their goals? The very best of financial planners hold themselves to that standard and the very best of clients demand that standard, but that's not how people get paid. Mm-hmm. might be how they get referred, but it's not how they get paid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, your, your, your point about the, the story that you brought up where you're not a state planner, you have no skin in the game, often those conversations would have been motivated by a financial gain of the profession in some capacity. And that, uh, I'm a big fan of financial coaching, and I think it's going to play a very important role as we move forward. And even bringing in what you talked about, your question, what does money mean to you? Those questions, like our financial planners, and we have these checklists, and I feel like they're just often surface level. Whereas when we start to bring those other questions, like you talked about bringing in your values, not just like, tell me your values. I'm going to have a conversation with you, and we're going to really uh, uncover those like hidden values that have been suppressed because I feel like I should be handling my money in some way. I think it's going to open the door for very meaningful financial conversations where to your client's point, you might not need that big house anymore, but look at the the fulfillment you have now. Yeah. I just want to put a fine point on something. You said, what does your money mean for you? That's not actually what I said. I got it. I said, what is your money for? I'm not so interested in what your money means for you because that's a past-based conversation. I'm Mm -hmm. interested in a future-based conversation, first of all. And second of all, I'm interested in a context for money that inspires you and empowers you. And for a lot of people, particularly people for whom this is a real weakness, what money means to me is it is yet more proof that I'm a loser. Mm. Or it's yet more proof that I have disappointed my parents. Or it's yet more proof that my life isn't going to work out. That's what money means for me. Well, I don't want to have that conversation. That's not helpful. So you could spend a lot of time, and there is a, a burgeoning industry in financial therapy, and for a lot of people, that is a hugely important thing. Coaching is not therapy. So mm. we're asking a different question, which is forward-oriented, and then with the follow-on to say, great, what actions are you going to take today and tomorrow? And a big part of our financial coaching program is about accountability. So the program that I'm speaking of is called Credit Canada Gold. It is six weeks. It's as close to boot camp uh, as you can find. So it's hosted virtually two hours a week. But in addition to that, there's group coaching, there is an accountability buddy, and there's homework. And on the one hand, you're like, oh my God, people sign up for that. Oh yeah, they sign up for it. But the remarkable thing for me is they stay. 
So mm-hmm. if they make it to that first night, and not everybody does, we have some attrition before we start. If they show for that first night, we have 95% completion, which is astounding to me. We have 95% attendance every week. People show up. And that really is a demonstration of the of the value that they get from being in the in the group, but also the reframe that they do in their own minds to say, wait a second, maybe before I was someone who wasn't reliable. I'm now someone who's reliable to do what I say. And I said, I'm going to be here every single night. And I said, I'm going to, you know, every single week for the program, I said, I'm going to call my accountability buddy. I am now someone who is reliable in that regard. Yeah, changing that narrative, I am reliable, is quite yeah. quite empowering. The attrition rate being so low, it makes me think of something you said earlier. When you were talking about your father and your experience with money, he was very diligent. You thought you had to be careful around money, which, you know, there's some good skills in that. But you said your father brought no judgment. When I was reading some testimonies from your clients, I highlighted one and it says, I felt no judgment at all from this client. So I'm wondering, how have you brought in this? Like, Because with money, we often feel judged. And that's, that's a, a barrier. We feel like we're not doing it proper. How have anything at all you've brought in this sense, maybe this lesson you learned from your father way back to your counselors or your coaches that to this testimony to not bring judgment into these conversations? It's very simple. It's very, very simple. Is you listen keenly to what they say they want. And then you coach from there. So if you want prestige, I can coach you in that area. If you want beauty, if you want peace of mind, whatever it is that you want, I can coach you. But my job is not to tell you what you want. My job is to help you get what you want. So as we train our coaches and really train a community of people who've never thought like, wait, wait a second, what? The industry is telling me I'm supposed to pay myself first. And the industry is telling me I got to max out my RSP. It's telling me it's very patriarchal and very judgy judge your son. It almost sounds like a religion. And we're not like that. Like, I don't care. I don't care what you want. But whatever it is that you want, first of all, I'm going to help you distinguish it or determine it, articulate it in a very clear way. And then I'm going to hold your feet to the fire to get it. That's how this is going to go. And we are unapologetic about that. We are brash about that. We are relentless about that. I think there is um, a part of our Canadian culture that does not serve Canadians. And that is when we are polite to a fault. And in Mm -hmm. the financial advisory space, I think there are some, maybe many advisors who are hesitant to have tough conversations because they're concerned that they're going to ruffle the feathers of the client. And I think what they're missing is the big idea of being an advisor who will stand for relentlessly for for the pursuit of what their client wants, whatever it is. Mm. And that's magic, like just mm-hmm. magical. If you can do that, that is like an A triple plus advisor, the one who's willing to say, listen, hey, yeah, so you said you wanted X. What I'm noticing is you're behaving in a way that is preventing you from getting X. So we got two things here. One, you can change what you want, 100%. Tell me you don't want it anymore. Stop lying. Stop lying to me. Stop lying to yourself. Or you can stop doing that other thing. And I, what I love more than anything 
not more than anything. I shouldn't say that because I like chocolate brownies more than anything. <laughs> but what I love is an advisor saying, I can't help you. You're not taking the coaching. You're not doing what you say you are going to do. And that's not how I work. You should go find another advisor. I'm firing you because I'm not willing to stand by and have you say you're going to do something and then you actually do something else. I'm just being ineffective. So I'm not doing that anymore. And let Mm -hmm. that money walk out the door. Now, here's my hypothesis. You do that and you lose one client and you gain 10 because your relentless stand and your relentless focus for your remaining clients is going to be what has you be incredibly referable. They'll be like, mm-hmm. I don't know what got into my financial advisor, but he's like, <laughs> he is like demonic about his focus that I retire at 60. He's relentless. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, she's amazing when it comes to supporting me and my goals. I hear a key to this is what you talked about, what they want and yeah. not being relentless in my pursuit of growing my business or my desires. Yeah. That like, that exquisite listening is critical in that. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a a direct conflict of interest for advisors because most advisors, unless you're um, fee only. So if someone takes, they've got $2 million with you, they take a million dollars out of their nest egg and buy a house, a second house somewhere, you've lost a significant chunk of change. So you need to really think broadly to say, no, no, I'm going to park that. That, that, that. What they want is the second house in Arizona. So Mm -hmm. they should go do that. And that money is, that means I'm not going to have that money to manage, but I'm going to be so excited. I'm going to send them a a bottle of wine to congratulate them. And and I'm probably going to get referred multiple times because I really was genuinely supportive of them in that regard. When you see people, they definitely feel it. So I see the time here. I got two questions that could be relatively short. I want to respect your time. But I can see and people can hear your enthusiasm for the work you do with Credit Canada. What excites you as we're entering 2024 that Credit Canada is bringing? The number one thing that I would say is the expansion of our financial coaching programs. So we're adding more programs. We're increasing the number of people in the room. We're looking at different accountability processes, different technology for us to really take this to the next level, to use the cliche. No one is doing this at scale. No one. So there are financial advisors who coach. That's great. Mostly one-on-one. There are many group coaching programs. There's lots of programs, but no one is doing what we are doing. What we are doing is helping people get out of debt so that they can get back into life. And that's the thing I'm most excited about. We've got great sponsors who are enabling this kind of work. We're doing customized programs for different demographics so that we have a real richness in the lived experience of the the people in the room. But creditcanada.com slash gold is how you hear more about it. And that's something that we're doing that's a real game changer that I'm really excited about. That is awesome. I think the coaching in the financial space is much needed. So wonderful work. My final question that I've asked all 160 some people (laughs) is let's now imagine you are at end of life. It doesn't matter how old you are. Yeah, I'm 94. I'm 94. 94. Okay, I've already checked. You're not a planner by by any means. (laughs) You are sitting on a porch looking out at a mountain, a lake, it doesn't matter where, but something that brings you peace, ease, and contentment. 
And you're sitting on this chair and you decide to take out a notebook and write a letter to your children's children on what you learned were keys to have a happy and healthy relationship with money. What would be a theme to that letter? Such a great question. Well, the theme to that letter that I would write to my children's children would be take the time to create a life worth living. And money is just a tool. That's all it is. It's a tool. Go down to the toolbox. You got a screwdriver. You got a wrench. You got a leveler. Any area of life has tools that will bring those areas to life. And money is common across all of them. All of them. So learn how to use that tool, not because the dollars in the bank account mean anything about your value as a human or the success that you have had, but because they can enable you to live the life that you want. And for some people, sure, that is community service and making a difference in a legacy. For other people, it's not. They have no interest. They don't care about climate change. They just want to have a great life as an individual. And that's fine too. I don't have any, whatever. You determine what is a life worth living and then use this tool called money to have it happen. We got, I got 94 years on here and I think of the, the life I have as a, the quality of the life I have is a function of the quality of the lives of those around me. That's my personal view. It's not everybody's view, right? Like, I'm not saying I'm Mother Teresa meets Mahatma Gandhi, because I am not. <laughs> but that's really how I think of it. And so when I think about my work as the CEO of Credit Canada and the work that I do in, in the media, that's really the self-expression, is the quality of my life is a function of the quality of the lives of those around me. So that's what, how it's, I'm going to spend my time. That's what I'm going to do. That and playing pickleball, because I'm nuts about pickleball. <laughs> it's uh, the fastest growing sport in North America, and I am completely obs obsessed. I hear this. I, I have to try it. You have your, your last comment there, there are very few psychological research papers that look at well-being that do not say that those like your point, functions of the relationships around you aren't a key indicator to life well-lived or increasing your well-being. So I think it, your point is really, really important is having those people around us and the impact you're having on them. So you've been impacting people for a long time. Thank you for the work you're doing now with Credit Canada. Thank you so much for joining me. And you, you gave a, a link that we'll put in the show notes for the coaching course. Is there any other links you'd point people towards your podcast? Yeah, moolala.ca is where they can find info about moolala, money made simple, moolala, and creditcanada.com slash gold for more information about financial coaching. Listen, thank you for the invitation. You asked some really great conversations. And I don't think there was one single answer that I attempted in less than 12 minutes. So I apologize for being a bit of a long talker, but it was a great experience for me to be here. No, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in this week. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Bruce brings a wealth of experience and knowledge, and I really appreciate him taking the time to speak with me. If you're still listening, 
you can help support the show in one or two ways. You can head over to Apple Podcasts, leave a review, or share this episode with someone you think would enjoy it. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Until next week, have yourself a good one. I'm on a mountain without a top. My wealth is measured and now I spend my time. But now I write a freedom story with every breath inhaled. Money is not the boat of life. It's just the wind in the sea.